Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Scripps researcher Artem Pataputian wins the Nobel Prize for Medicine. Artem's group was able to basically answer a question that hasn't been answered this whole time. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hyman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Research gets underway at SDSU on why healthcare is lacking in San Diego's Latinx community. It's really a golden opportunity to elevate the work that we've already been doing by hiring a group of individuals who will come in and be part of our community. A Camp Pendleton Marine struggle to get adequate mental health care and the pushes on to create a black arts district on Imperial Avenue. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. This year's Nobel Prize for Medicine has been awarded to Scripps Research Scientist Ardem Pataputian. Pataputian and his partner David Julius at UC San Francisco won the award for their work in discovering how skin receptors allow people to sense temperature and touch. The Nobel Committee says Pataputian and Julius uncovered the pathways that are fundamental to our ability to feel, interpret, and interact with our environment. Pataputian spoke about his work briefly soon after he was notified about the Nobel Prize. In science, many times it's uh, things that we take for for granted that um, are of high interest. And um, us being in the field of sensing touch and pain, this was kind of the big elephant in the room. The Nobel Prize for Medicine is widely regarded as the highest prize in science, and Scripps is planning a celebration for the latest of its researchers to be awarded a Nobel. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune biotech reporter Jonathan Wosen. And Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, Pataputian's research apparently discovered the molecular basis of how we can feel temperature and force through touch. Can you explain that a bit more? Sure. So Artem's group, uh, which has been at Scripps for the past 20 years, was able to basically answer a question that hasn't been answered this whole time, which is exactly how do we take things like a handshake or a warm cup of coffee or a hug and turn that into some sort of biological electrical signal uh, that can actually reach the brain and allow us to you know, sense our environment? So he had done some experiments and researchers in his lab had done some experiments 
uh, essentially on a line of cells growing in the lab uh, that would produce little electrical signals in response to little pokes and prods. And so what they started doing was they started disabling genes one by one by the other uh, to find which genes were essential for allowing those electrical signals to happen. And so they stumbled upon a couple of key genes that uh, code for or have the instructions to build uh, two pretty important proteins as part of that process. And when we talk about touch, we're actually talking about all different forms of touch from our sense of pressure to our sense of pain, you know, your, your sense that your stomach is full after a meal, that your lungs are full when you've taken in a breath of air. So it's a pretty wide ranging question in biology and, and the applications for it in terms of, you know, chronic pain, in terms of, you know, cells in your heart that have to feel blood pressure. You know, these are all areas where we may be able to uh, unlock some new therapeutics just by understanding the molecules that control this aspect of our lives. Were Pataputian and Julius expected to win this year's Nobel in medicine, or is this a surprise? So they were both definitely in the running. And I can say that because the previous year in 2020, they won another really prestigious prize in science, the uh, Kavli Prize, which is announced every two years. And they got that prize for the exact same discovery. That's a prize where the winners are usually acknowledged in person in Oslo, Norway. So they had previously won a, a pretty significant honor for the same exact discovery. So they were definitely, you know, I think on the docket and in the running for the Nobel Prize as well. Scripps held a news conference this morning about the award to one of its researchers. What did they have to say? So it was interesting. Artem introduced himself as, uh, you know, a Lebanese immigrant, as someone who grew up in Beirut at a time when there was a civil war, talked about himself being essentially a refugee and uh, coming here and experiencing the American dream, uh, discovering science, you know, having the sort of financial aid and support of going to public universities. He, he went to uh, UCLA initially, and then from there went on to do a PhD and get additional training. So he really framed it as an American story. Uh, you know, he was very incredibly grateful that, to spend his life as a scientist and to get to pursue curiosity and these fundamental questions of how the human body works. Uh, and really just a, a lot of genuine joy was one funny moment that uh, he mentioned earlier this morning was that he actually uh, was would have missed the phone call from uh, Stockholm, uh, you know, telling him that he had won the Nobel Prize. It was only because his 94-year-old father uh, evidently had also been getting phone calls uh, that he was able to get through to Artem uh, pretty early in the morning. Otherwise, he was, he was uh, sound asleep. <laughs> In normal times, Artem Patapurian would be preparing to travel to Stockholm to accept the Nobel Prize, but that's not the case this year, is it? Right. So this is the second year in a row that that has been derailed by the COVID-19 pandemic. So 2020, as well as 21, that moment of celebration has been turned into a sort of virtual uh, ceremony. And, and the same was true last year when he won the Catholic Prize. So you know, at this rate, we expect that maybe 2022 would be the next time that uh, there would be an in-person uh, ceremony, although that really has yet to be confirmed for sure at, at, at this point in the pandemic. Isn't there a large cash award that accompanies this prize? Yeah, it's about $1 million, a little bit more, $1.14 million. So Arden will be uh, sharing that with David Julius, his colleague, who was also at, at uh, the University of California, San Francisco. So Artem's team is essentially famous for 
identifying these genes behind how we sense touch and pressure. And David Julius's group identified a, a similar protein that controls our sense of heat. And uh, they were able to do that by looking at how cells respond to capsaicin. That's the same chemical in chilies that probably makes you want to grab a glass of cold milk or water when you've had something too spicy, but it also controls uh, responses to high temperatures and uh, low oxygen con conditions, as well as uh, inflammation, all trigger that same receptor in our bodies. Now, Pataputian is the latest Scripps researcher to win a Nobel. Who were the others? Bruce Butler won the Nobel Prize for identifying a set of receptors that are really important in immune responses about you know, 20 years ago. Barry Sharpless won the Nobel Prize in, in chemistry uh, for his work on catalysts. Uh, there are also a number of other Nobel Prize recipients sort of in San Diego life sciences um, across the other research institutes. You know, Roger Chen comes to mind. Uh, he identified a set of molecules that cause certain jellyfish to glow uh, in the dark. And that's actually the genes behind those molecules have become a really important, a really basic tool across all aspects of uh, biology research. Anytime researchers want to be able to see a certain structure under the microscope, uh, they, they use what's called a fluorescent protein. So uh, definitely yet another example of a pretty productive life science industry that we have, a community that we have here in San Diego. And what kind of benefit does Scripps Research get from having a staff scientist win a Nobel? Well, it's definitely something that adds to Scripps Research's re reputation uh, as one of the top nonprofit research organizations in the country, something that you know, is going to attract probably even more talent to that institute in the future uh, you know, as they're bringing in graduate students and postdoctoral researchers. I, I think it's safe to say there are a lot of people who would love to work at a place that has a, a number of Nobel Prize winners, not a lot of people who would love to work in, in those labs. So it, it's something that ultimately cements uh, their status as, you know, one of the more high-powered uh, scientific organizations uh, that, that's out there today. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune biotech reporter Jonathan Wosen. Jonathan, thank you. It's been fun. Thank you. The Latinx community is disproportionately impacted by health disparities, from environmental injustice to a lack of health care access. Long-standing issues have created health challenges like obesity and even cancer for many people. Now a program called SDSU Fuerte has received a $15 million grant from the National Institutes of Health to research and find solutions to those health disparities. Joining me to talk about the research is Maria Luisa Suniega, a professor at the SDSU School of Social Work and co-principal investigator of Fuerte. Maria, welcome. Thank you very much. So can you tell us more about the SDSU Fuerte program and why the National Institutes of Health said they selected the program for this grant? San Diego State University has a very strong track record in health disparities research to promote Latinx and minority health. So over the course of many years, uh, our researchers have devoted many hours and time 
to reducing health disparities and really understanding some of the nuances that are are important to uh, Latinx and minority health. So uh, we're very proud. Fuerte, which means strong in Spanish, faculty united towards excellence in research and transformational engagement. We were funded by NIH because we're also home to Latinx cancer disparities researchers, uh, specialists in environmental health, obesity, and addiction and HIV. These are all the types of areas and health problems that deeply impact Latinos both at regionally and nationwide. And the research on Latinx disparities will be conducted by a group of 11 new faculty members. Talk to me about the reasons for recruiting new faculty members to do this research. Absolutely. So this is uh, probably a once in a lifetime opportunity to select and reach out to some of the best researchers across the nation with a passion for Latinx health and their research focus area in the areas of either cancer, uh, environmental health, nutrition, um, activities and health disparities in Latinx health. So it's really a golden opportunity to elevate the work that we've already been doing by hiring a group of individuals who will come in and be part of our community. My role will be to help provide the supports that researchers need, including researchers from underrepresented groups. And there's a tradition, and it's unfortunate, but many times uh, because there are fewer researchers from underrepresented groups, Latinx, Black, other underrepresented communities, we need to make a stronger effort at supporting these researchers to succeed, especially because of their specialization in minority health and reducing health disparities. Three of the faculty members will be working from the university's Imperial Valley campus. Do Imperial Valley Latinx residents face more health disparities than those in other areas? The disparities they face are different because of their environment. So environmentally, we, you know, when we should really think about uh, San Diego State University's program will be across the border, which is very exciting. Imperial Valley is an agricultural area, and it is next to uh, the capital of Baja California, Mexico. So the dynamics and the region itself is different. The exposures as as well, the environmental exposures may be different in this area so that a focus on environment will allow us to really understand better where might be the best places to intervene and support the best health of individuals and communities living in the Imperial Valley. And 85% of Imperial County residents identify as Hispanic or Latino. How big is the community in San Diego County and is it growing? Yes, so San Diego County is about a third Latino, 34%, according to the last census estimates. And we're just under California, uh, which is almost 40%, so 39% Latinos. In San Diego, we are growing. And also, I think there's an important element of the vibrancy of being a border community. So we have a very vibrant relationship with Tijuana and our institutions to the south. And just that cross-border mobility is part of who we are as well. So really understanding that not only is Latinx health in the region 
uh, impacted by our own or, or the, the communities, but that our community is really broader. And what are some of the disparities among Latinx households across both counties that we know exist? So certainly we learned, if nothing else, that COVID exposed, the, the pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic exposed, and it sort of took this blanket off of what health disparities is really looking in and what are some of the issues of health disparities in Latinx communities. So Regionally, we have high levels of uninsured. Uh, nationally, about uh, half of Latinx families have private insurance compared to 75% in Latinx whites. Uh, we have high levels of obesity and low physical activity in both parts of the region. Imperial Valley suffers tremendously from uh, diabetes and other uh, chronic diseases that can be prevented through better lifestyle, nutrition, and exercise. Um, we also have a disproportionate number of uh, cancers relating to stomach and liver cancers. Among Latinas in Latinx uh, women in our region, we also have a high level of uh, human papillomavirus and cervical cancers. And this is uh, very concerning because it has to do with the lack of access to care and low participation in screening for cervical cancer. Uh, so this, in addition to asthma and, as you'd mentioned, environmental exposures, these are all areas of incredible need for research and interventions to improve community health. And overall, how do you hope this fund will have an impact on Latinx health disparities regionally, nationally, and globally? Well, this is very exciting because it is an opportunity to bring a group of individuals that in and of themselves have a lifelong passion towards reducing health disparities in the Latinx community. So if we can think about this as energizing and working in synergy with the foundation that San Diego State University already has in addressing health disparities and, and our high-level research capacity, this is just an opportunity to really launch and make a significant step towards bolstering our efforts to promote the full health of Latinx and other underserved communities. I've been speaking to Maria Luisa Suniega, a professor at the SDSU School of Social Work and co-principal investigator of Fuerte. Maria, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Jade. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The wars are over, but the battle has just started for many troops dealing with injuries. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh says one Marine scored a rare win in a system that advocates say invites troops with PTSD to commit more misconduct while the military decides their fate. I started working out again. I've gotten healthy. I don't feel, I don't have that dark cloud over me that I used to have. I met Cooper Williams just as the sun was coming up outside a coffee house an hour north of San Diego. He sounded upbeat. Last December, he'd been worried about being kicked out of the Marines after 17 years. Am I going to lose everything? Is my family, are we going to be put out after 18 years without any any insurance, any uh, assistance based off of everything that I went through and all the mitigating circumstances. Yeah, that was, that was taxing on myself and my family. He'd been spiraling. After multiple deployments, including Iraq and Afghanistan, he was self-medicating. A horrific family tragedy had made things worse when his parents were involved in a murder-suicide. Williams asked for help. He entered a wounded warrior battalion at Camp Pendleton, where Marines are treated for mental and physical injuries. But in the space of one month, he racked up two DUIs. He faced dismissal from the Corps. From the time of the incident uh, till now, it's been about a year and eight months. His attorney sent letters to his command showing Williams wasn't receiving the proper medication, but he still faced being discharged. Then, earlier this year, Williams was told one of the generals in charge of his case changed his mind. Lieutenant General Ed Banta now thought Williams should be allowed to retire. You know, there's a lot that was going on at that time, both medication-wise, personal-wise, dealing with the death of my parents, dealing with some things. But it wasn't over. Williams was still required to face a board of inquiry. The process hung over him for 20 months until a panel of three officers recently ruled in his favor. So it feels feels very good to have the weight lifted off of your shoulder and the cloud of the unknown and the fear of the unknown because that weighing over you within itself is a very uh, emotionally taxing thing, I guess, even for you and your family. So very glad. And if you have someone who's suffering from mental health or TBI issues, they're likely to commit more misconduct. Esther Liebenfarth is with the National Veterans Legal Services Program. She says the military typically doesn't reverse itself even in cases where service-related medical conditions play a role in the misconduct. Liebenfarth says the Marines and other services need a single set of rules so troops with TBI or traumatic brain injuries or PTSD don't go through a long process where they risk losing everything. Because it's a symptom of their mental health condition. They're likely to hurt themselves. They're likely to have other adverse effects if you're two years just waiting to find out what's going to happen to you and without proper treatment, without being able to move on to your life. In a letter obtained by KPBS, the new commander of Wounded Warrior Battalion West, Lieutenant Colonel Rebecca Harvey, says Williams did not receive proper treatment initially. She revealed that mental health resources have gone down more than 50 percent at a time when the Marines are seeing more cases like Williams. She added, Marines like Chief Warrant Officer Williams have served for many years, often ignoring their injuries to ensure they can deploy when asked. We owe them more. Between his treatment and the separation process, she says, the Marine Corps failed Williams. For his part, Williams is ready to move on with his life. It made me better as a person. 
it made me dig deep into find out who I am inside and, and who I am and how I'm gonna respond because there's two different ways you can respond in those situations. You can either go darker or you can come into the light. Joining me is KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. And Steve, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Why don't military personnel suffering from PTSD and other service-related medical problems retire sooner? Why would they stay in the service? Uh, you know, there are a number of reasons. One, I don't think anybody wants to be forced out of a job and forced into retirement if they think they can still do the job. Mainly, they, they want to serve, and they're trained to overcome any obstacle so they can continue to serve. The problem is they know if they admit they have an issue, especially a mental health issue, that they uh, may be declared non-deployable, and then they could be forced out of the service. On the flip side, the, the pace of deployment over the last 20 years has been incredibly high, especially for people with certain kinds of skill sets like this, the ones that skills that Cooper Williams has. So Williams was in demand. He became a, a warrant officer within a few years of arriving at the Wounded Warrior Battalion at Pendleton's. So until recently, you know, he, his career was, uh, was on the upswing until he, he finally had to admit that he had to do something about you know, his PTSD. You know, they have changed the military retirement system, though. So it used to be that you'd have to put in 20 years or you'd really get next to nothing. Uh, now, you know, you can, it's the system has changed, so you kind of take out what you put in. So somebody can put in 10 years and they still have something, some sort of retirement. You say the Marine that you interviewed, Chief Warrant Officer Cooper, had been self-medicating while he was involved in the incidents that almost had him dismissed. Do you mean he was drinking too much? Drinking is part of it. There were also prescription medications. Um, you know, back in December when we first covered this story, he told me about going into an ER at a civilian hospital so he could get medication there and avoid that having that treatment go on his military record, which uh, from what I hear is not all that uncommon. So when he was at the Wounded Warrior Battalion, he was treated. You know, he was on medication initially, but they didn't they seemed to recognize the severity of his condition. The meds he was being prescribed uh, were actually seeming to make his symptoms worse. His wife uh, described seeing his personality just completely change. And tell us more about the Wounded Warriors Battalion. How does it help Marines who've been injured mentally and physically? So a little bit of history here. They were founded back in 2007 after several years uh, of war in, in both in Iraq and Afghanistan. At the time, there were these horror stories of, of troops who were left unattended in barracks and some of who killed themselves. People were falling through the cracks after leaving Walter Reed and the other facilities. This was designed to be a one-stop shop for people to process their injuries and, if possible, return to their home units and, and go on with their careers. The Wounded Warriors Battalion reports that its resources have gone down more than 50%. Who's making the decision to cut those funds? Well, that is, that's the big question, Maureen. And the simple answer is, I don't know the answer. That letter, that uh, the comments about the cut of 50%, that was in a letter from Lieutenant Colonel Rebecca Harvey. She's the, the new head of Wounded Warrior Battalion West here at Camp Pendleton. She wrote that in defense of uh, Cooper Williams at his board of inquiry. Um, that's where she talked about, you know, the cuts in mental health services, it, admitting that the Marines were slow to treat and diagnose Williams, you know, saying that uh, there were also other troops like him in the pipeline. 
You know, I filed data requests with the Marines to find out uh, just who are in these battalions now. Uh, you know, I'm interested in just how many of these, these Marines uh, inside the Wounded Warrior Battalions are facing involuntarily being separated, just like Cooper Williams. And right now, I just really haven't seen many answers beyond that really telling letter. Well, since the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are over, why is it now that Wounded Warriors is seeing more cases like Cooper Williams? Again, that was in the letter, and my guess is it's a lagging indicator. People who have uh, seen the most action over the last two decades are now at the back end of their careers. You have people whose entire careers were marked by consistent deployments and, 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 and constant combat. Uh, something that prior to 9-11, most people would have gone through entire careers without seeing combat. Now in, they're at the back half of their careers. They may have uh, delayed treatment like Williams for more than a decade just so they can keep deploying. And they were encouraged to do that so that they could be available to be deployed. People uh, who were cycling through training and deployment are now back at home for longer periods. Their behavior starts to catch up with them. Um, they can become discipline problems. That's what we saw in the case of, of Cooper Williams, though improper diagnosis clearly played a role in his case. He really hadn't seen any major issues until he came actually to the Wounded Warrior Battalion, and he hadn't seen any issues since those two DUIs. Did Cooper Williams share with you any plans he has after the Marines? Yeah, he seemed very... When I met him this second time after all these months... Um, he has a young family. He's thinking about going to school. He maybe, uh, you know, he's going to do something in the medical field. He's got a lead on a job working for a company in Texas. Basically, he's just, he's very upbeat and now very optimistic about the future. It's a real change from the first time when I talked to him, when he was really in the throes of, of all of this. And it was looking quite bleak because these cases, though they're common, uh, an actual reversal like what we've seen in his case is still quite uncommon. He really is, you know, quite unique. I've been speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. And Steve, thank you. Thanks, Maureen. California's statewide eviction moratorium has expired, and now many tenants are looking for rent relief and legal guidance. KQED housing reporter Molly Solomon got a first-hand look inside a busy tenant attorney's office. The minute you walk into the Oakland offices of the Eviction Defense Center, you see lots and lots of folders piling up on people's desks, overflowing from boxes. So these are all the Berkeley open applications that need rental assistance. And Tamiko Amora showed me inside. She's the center's executive director. It's oh kind my of intense. God. So that's what all of these boxes are everywhere. Yes. It's just so many of them. To reach as many people as they can, her office has been working 11-hour days and on weekends. About a half dozen employees sit close together wearing masks. The morning I visit is the first day after the state's eviction moratorium expired. Eviction Defense Center. Um, Mass is calling? Our phones have been going off the charts since this morning. There's a ton of messages See, this morning. So. Eric Magania is a case manager. He's fielding calls and texts. 
and helps a man who walks into the office looking for help with rent. He's just going to start collecting his documents and stuff so they can upload them into the portal today. Okay. The man didn't want to be interviewed, but he was carrying a crumpled list of different aid groups. He said he'd been walking to different places all morning, but this was the first one he found that was open. He's behind on his rent and his utility bills, but he happens to be in Oakland, and Oakland happens to be accepting applications starting today, so it's perfect timing. Other employees, like office manager Amanda Lara, are calling people back who left voicemails. So you were a healthcare worker. What was your income a month? Rough estimate, my dear. 4000 a month, and then you were in school too? Oh, wow, that's great. So full-time student and full-time worker and a single mom? She says they're helping a lot of people with rent relief, but in the last few weeks, the type of calls have been changing. More people are looking for legal advice on evictions. We had like 20 voicemails within an hour or two, just people asking like, can my landlord evict me? My landlord's telling me I have to go. I just received this type of notice. Tamika Omura expects to get a lot more calls and have to defend a lot of cases in eviction court in the months ahead. Notices are getting served today. We're definitely getting the first wave of calls, but um, I think it's going to snowball. She knows they'll be stretched thin, but worries if they can't defend people, many of them will end up with an eviction on their record and without a place to live. That was KQED's Molly Solomon. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. A nondescript stretch of Imperial Avenue in San Diego's Encanto neighborhood could host a Black Arts District to support culture and community in the area. The hope is that the formal establishment of the city's first Black Arts and Culture District could bring resources and revitalization to a long-ignored neighborhood. San Diego journalist Andrea Lopez Villafania joins us now with more. Andrea, welcome. Hi, how's it going? Good, good, thanks. So can you start off by setting the stage for us here? What is it about this part of the city that would make it a good home for a Black Arts District? Yeah, so this area is really interesting. I mean, you have a trolley line that runs right through it. You have a lot of Black-owned businesses. Um, It has a long history of well-known leaders that kind of, you know, worked or um, advocated in some form there in that neighborhood. It was also home to the Encanto Street Fair, which brought a lot of Black artists, uh, musicians, a lot of community resources for the neighborhood. So yeah, it's always been kind of like a central area. Uh, of that district, District 4 in the city of San Diego. So who's behind this effort to officially recognize the area as a Black Arts District? 
Yeah. So a couple people, a lot of people have been trying to, to get this area recognized or at least some attention. There's a park in the area that um, has been neglected. A lot of the um, businesses that used to be there are abandoned now. So um, one, one person in particular that's kind of leading this movement now, uh, her name is Kimberly Phillips P and she's a local artist. She's with the Southeast art team, a, a group of artists in Southeastern San Diego. And uh, she's really pushing for this. She put together an online petition um, and she's just kind of, you know, advocating. She organized a tour to really bring attention to the area. And what are people from within the community saying about establishing an official district in the area? Yeah, so people are excited. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, often you live in, a, in an area and you might not know all the history about it. So uh, some of the residents I actually spoke with who went on the tour were a little surprised by things that they didn't know about their own neighborhood, that they grew up there, but, you know, they didn't know so-and-so had come from there or an artist had established something there. And uh, so I think people are excited. I mean, mainly there's a lot of uh, great community activists that, you know, people know in the neighborhood, but their stories aren't really preserved anywhere. So they're really hoping that through this Black Arts District, they can preserve the voices of, of Black leaders in that area and hopefully, you know, bring some more attention to that area. What does official recognition of an area as an arts district entail? Does that unlock certain funds or resources for the area? Yeah, so there are different ways to go about it. I mean, one of the uh, most official ways is to become a cultural district with the state. Uh, We have two here in San Diego. Uh, Bubble Park is one of them, and Barrio Logan is also one of them. But that's a really long process. I know um, City Heights was trying to do one in one section of that neighborhood. Uh, And the other way is for the city council basically to draft a resolution and say this is a cultural arts district, which they've done before. Um, And and it allows for two things. I mean, it allows for people in that district to market that area that way. uh, So you can bring more businesses, uh, more attention. Uh, Sometimes there are some grants available, but really it's just, you know, a lot of opportunity for marketing and really being able to shape what that area looks like. Are there other state-designated cultural districts in the city? There is Balboa Park and um, Barrio Logan, but that's it. It's just those two. So um, it's a big deal <laughs> to be a, a cultural district, and, and it's a long process. So um, I think if, if they went through with something like that, that would be super interesting. None of uh, the state's cultural districts are Black, like Black arts and cultural districts. So this would, have, this would be the first if, if they could make it all the way to the state. The organizer behind this effort says that Encanto has long been ignored. How so? A lot of lack of resources, um, a lot of those buildings and businesses there. uh, Some properties are owned by the city, some are not, and they've kind of just, you know, gone to waste. Uh, The best example are these um, art panels that were installed a long time ago by an artist, and they're kind of just falling apart and... Um, you know, the park I mentioned earlier, the, the bathrooms don't always work. And it's just, you know, it's not taken care of. So a lot of community members have just, Kim has led a lot of efforts to paint murals in that area to beautify it. But but yeah, there's just, there hasn't been a lot of money going into that area to to care for it. And you mentioned this and write that in past decades, this neighborhood used to be a prominent hub for Black arts and culture. What happened? Yeah, so there used to be the Encanto Street Fair, and um, that was organized by a lot of advocates. And and slowly, I think that 
you know, they couldn't organize it anymore. I think uh, the recession had part to do with that. And, you know, a, a group tried to pick it up, but you know, it didn't really get picked up and didn't have the resources that it needed for it to come together. So it just, it just eventually disappeared. And a lot of people really loved that fair. I mean, it was, it was a big fair and it was a important to, to highlight um, Black residents in San Diego. Since then, there's been a sort of grassroots effort to beautify the neighborhood with murals, painted utility boxes, and other kinds of public art. Can you tell us about this neighborhood as a center for art? Mainly it, it's um, the murals, but also there are um, a couple of centers there uh, that offer a lot of uh, community activities, like a, a men's circle, lots of, you know, aside from what you basically think of when you think of an arts and culture district, right? You think like galleries, uh, you think dance. So um, there are a couple areas and a couple of activities there where people organize these kinds of like events focused on arts and focused on music and and community so part part of the arts district would be to draw in maybe like an art gallery or maybe like a center for music for kids and where does official recognition of the neighborhood stand now is there any sense that this will be adopted by the city council or maybe the mayor's office yeah, so uh, Monica Montgomery um, is supportive. The, the mayor's office also told me that they would be supportive of the district. Uh, so right now, the city is basically working on the language for such a resolution, how to describe the area best. And they're really relying on community members to make sure they get that right. Uh, so, so once that's settled, hopefully we can see something come to city council and supported by everyone. And is there any timetable for when a formal establishment of this district could be? No, not yet. But I know, um, you know, Kimberly's really excited. She has big, big plans for it. I mean, she wants to see something like you could have tours with with bikes that go through the neighborhood. And, you know, I, I think the vision for what the area could be is beautiful and, and very uh, big, but it's going to take some time. <laughs> I've been speaking with San Diego journalist Andrea Lopez Villafania, and you can read this story in the San Diego Union Tribune. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. If you've lived in California long enough, you've probably seen one of those iconic yellow bumper stickers that say, Mystery Spot. But do you actually know what the 81-year-old roadside attraction called the Mystery Spot is all about? The California Report's Amanda Font took a friend to the Redwood Forest in the Santa Cruz Mountains to check it out. So here we are at the Mystery Spot. (laughs) Uh, This is my friend and colleague, Chloe Morizono. She's here with me as my sort of chief experiencer since I've been here so many times before. Are you excited? I'm very excited. Prepare to be amazed. (laughs) I've been to the mystery spot seven times in the last decade. I love bringing friends. And despite multiple visits and Googling how it works, I'm still kind of baffled about what's going on here. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the mystery spot. How's everybody doing? Our tour group of about 30 people meets at the bottom of a hill that marks the edge of the spot. Stella is our guide today. In 1939, a man named George Prather bought this land from a lumber company. But Prather noticed 
pretty quickly that something was weird. So the first thing that Mr. Breather realized was that this hillside right here is much more difficult to climb up than it should be. He reported feeling dizzy and disoriented in an area on the hill about 150 feet in diameter. Prather also claimed his compass would point in the wrong direction when he was on the hill. That isn't part of today's demonstrations, but other quirks of the hillside are. Stella lays some boards on the ground. So now this is a totally flat and level surface. Do you guys trust me? Yes. Okay, no. What? Do not trust someone you met three minutes ago. That's like rule number one. I can prove it, though. She puts down a level, and, yep, the bubble is right in the middle, totally level. Could I borrow you two? A couple of kids volunteer. All right, you, sir, you're going to stand right over here, okay? You guys are going to stand on the boards facing each other. Exactly. The kid on the right end of the boards is taller by about four inches. Go ahead and switch places. Oh, my God. (laughs) Suddenly, they're the same height. You guys see that difference, right? (laughs) Like, it's not just me. Could it be the mystery spot? Now we trudge up the steep hill. Are you feeling mysterious yet? It does feel mysterious. That that little switcheroo definitely got me. (laughs) We meet at the top in front of a very crooked cabin. It's a small wooden structure with two rooms and a couple paneless windows. It's leaning sharply downhill, and we're all leaning uphill. Just looking at it makes you dizzy. Standing inside it is very disorienting. You can't see much through the windows, and we're leaning at a 17-degree angle, which appears even greater with the lean of the cabin. We're practically diagonal. (laughs) It's hard to walk. (laughs) It looks like we're about to fall over. Oh my god, this is wild. Oh no! And then someone does. But don't worry, she's totally fine. The thing that most bewilders Chloe and me is the pendulum. In one room, a large lead weight is attached to a cable so it can swing freely. Like it's hanging downwards because that's the way that gravity pulls it, right? But when we swing it, it flies way over in one direction and only about half as far in the other direction. Okay. I was like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna understand what's going on right away. It's all just gravity, but pretty mysterious, eh? Pretty mysterious. The mystery spot sits on what's called a gravity hill. The idea is that an obstructed view of the horizon line throws off people's perception. Yeah, maybe, but can you fool gravity? Stella runs through the mystery spot's official theories. Maybe a UFO crashed into the hillside long ago and it's still buried there. Maybe there's a swirling pool of magma creating a magnetic anomaly. Or maybe we've been inhaling toxic fumes. And over the last 45 minutes, you have all been experiencing a mass group hallucination. Enjoy your stay in Santa Cruz. The truth remains a mystery. I know you all came here for our world famous bumper sticker! So does Chloe now share my love of the mystery spot? Definitely. It's worth the $8. For the California Report, I'm Amanda Font in Santa Cruz. What are you going to do with your bumper sticker? I don't know. I don't have a car. (laughs) 
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.